Hello and welcome into the Floor Slap Podcast, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Sean, uh, and it's hard to believe, but we're already about a quarter of the way through the college football regular season, coming off of a terrific week three of action. Um, always crazy just how cra- uh, quickly the football season moves once it finally arrives. Uh, but we have a loaded episode ahead of ourselves, as we always do. I'm going to kick things off explaining why I think the Big Ten has a major quarterback problem. It's been going on for the better part of a decade, and it once again reared its ugly head uh, this past weekend in what was a disappointing performance for the Big Ten as a whole. And then I'll get into recapping week three. Um, have a lot of teams to talk about, and then I'm going to get into game of the week, team of the week, um, <clears throat> and give out some helmet stickers. And then, as always, we'll finish up previewing week four. We have a really loaded slate of games this upcoming weekend, and I'll give you my five Big Ten betting locks to wrap up the episode. So let's not waste any more time and jump right into it. This is the Floor Slap Podcast. One of my main talking points in last week's episode was just how important week three of the 2023 season was for the Big Ten and their national perception. Because the Big Ten had seven matchups against the Power Five opponents in week three. Six of them were against the ACC, um, but I thought it was a tremendous opportunity for the Big Ten to step up and show what they're made of. Because um, as I've been saying all season long, this is the most wide open season of college football we've had in years. The Pac-12 is the consensus top con- top conference in the country, and rightfully so, they look great. But they're likely going to cannibalize themselves as they always do, and there hasn't been a clear-cut second-best conference that's emerged right now. You know, the Big 12 has looked god-awful outside of Texas and Oklahoma, um, and the SEC has looked just as mediocre as every other conference. So um, I thought Week Three was a great opportunity for the Big Ten to step up. Um, I was—I don't know if it was more so me expecting or hoping the Big Ten um, could get four wins, go four and three in those seven matchups. It would have required a couple upsets on the Big Ten's part because we were only favored in two of those games. Um, But I thought getting four wins in those matchups was doable. Um, But needless to say, that did not happen. The Big Ten went two and five in those matchups. Their only two wins were the two teams that were favored. Uh, Maryland won 42 to 14 against Virginia Friday night and Rutgers won 35 to 16 against Virginia Tech on Saturday. So I guess one of the, you know, one of the few upsides you can take from that if you're a Big Ten fan is you can still claim the Big Ten East is the best division of college football, and it's not even close. But um, on the flip side, that really doesn't mean much anymore, considering the Pac-12, Big 12, ACC, and even the American and Mountain West conferences, they've all eliminated divisions. And the SEC is as bad as it's been in 20 years. Um, So saying that the Big Ten East is the best division in college football really doesn't hold much weight anymore. Um, that being said, the Big Ten East does have five of the top six teams in the Floor Slaps Power Rankings. Um, Indiana was 13th in those, but I firmly believe that Indiana can compete in the West. And that's mainly because I think Taven Jackson is playing as well over the past two weeks, has played as well as any quarterback in that division. And therein lies the problem. That's the concerning part. That Taven Jackson, I think a Taven Jackson led Indiana team could compete in the West. Um, the Big Ten has a quarterback problem, plain and simple. And if you don't believe me, all you have to look, all you have to do is look at how much talent some of these other conferences have at the position. Um, just starting with the Pac-12, uh, with obviously guys like Caleb Williams, Shadur Sanders, uh, Cam Rising when he returns, he's a top twenty quarterback in the country for Utah. Uh, Bo Nix, DJ Uyunglele, who's had a terrific start for Oregon State. Michael Penix, a Big Ten transfer. Um, you know what? 
easy top five Heisman contender so far this season. Um, even Cam Ward at Washington State tore uh, Washington, uh, Wisconsin's defense up. Um, and even true freshman, true freshman Dante Moore at UCLA, he looks like our future first rounder um, through the first few weeks of the season. I know that might be saying a lot right now, but he's looked really, really good and frankly, better than almost every quarterback in the Big Ten. Um, but you can also look to the ACC, you know, with Jordan Travis at Florida State and Drake May at North Carolina, obviously the headliners, but even Duke has Riley Leonard. He's played really well. Miami's Tyler Van Dyke, Syracuse's uh, Garrett Schrader, who just ran for almost 200 yards um, against Purdue's defense, and Louisville's Jack Plummer. He's played really well. Another Big Ten transfer. He came from Purdue. Um, all of those guys are very capable quarterbacks and all miles ahead, uh, miles better than really any quarterback in the Big Ten West. So obviously, the quarterbacks in the Big Ten in 2023 do just simply do not match up to the quarterbacks found in other conferences. Um, but this is not just a 2023 problem. Um, I went back the past 10 years over the Big Ten, um, and really, frankly, with the exception of Ohio State, who really runs their program entirely different than virtually every other program in the Big Ten, um, the Big Ten has been starved of quality quarterbacks, NFL-caliber quarterbacks. So in the 2012 draft, the Big Ten had Russell Wilson out of Wisconsin and Kirk Cousins out of Michigan State, two you know, quarterbacks that are still starting today. Um, you can definitely hang your hat on those. Um, but if you're curious who the best NFL quarterbacks to come out of the Big Ten since that draft, um, other than you know Ohio State, as I said, we're going to disclude them for this exercise, the best quarterbacks are C.J. Beathard out of Iowa and Trevor Simeon out of Northwestern. Those are the best NFL quarterbacks the Big Ten has produced in the past 10 years. That's concerning. And honestly, I think it comes down to coaching more than anything, because I think Big Ten schools are definitely capable of drawing great quarterbacks, whether it be from high school or from the portal. Um, you say Michael Penix, he's probably, he might be a first round pick um, this year. He was at Indiana for three seasons. Um, Hudson Card and Tanner Mordecai were each um, two of the highest rated quarterbacks in the transfer portal this season they went to big 10 schools uh luke altmeyer was a highly re recruited uh, quarterback out of high school and you know he came to illinois from ole miss this season so i definitely think big 10 quarter big 10 schools are capable of drawing good to great quarterbacks um the problem is that i don't see coaches other than at ohio state um proving that they can develop quarterbacks and you just look at all the head coaches in the big 10 um pj fleck luke fickle kirk ferentz tom allen jim harbaugh greg Schiano, matt rule ryan walters david braun brett bielema all of those guys every single one all defensive oriented head coaches defensive minded and they build their coaching staff and their rosters like that um, and I think part of the reason why the SEC is struggling this year is they've traditionally had some really great quarterbacks and they just simply don't this year. They're kind of in the Big Ten, the Big Ten's pool with just, you know, having mediocre play at that position. Um, but the difference is between the Big Ten and SEC is that it's been a consistent problem with the Big Ten. Um, and I think it's why we've seen recently the Big Ten struggle in non-conference games at the beginning of the season, but then perform pretty well in bowl games because Big Ten, these Big Ten teams aren't being built to put up points we're being built to you know run these three yard in a cloud of dust offenses and you know control the ball and win win the game with defense and that's that's the kind of style that wins you games in november and in the postseason when when teams are beat up but earlier in the season when you know all these teams are trying to play with their shiny new toys on offense the big 10 just can't keep up 
Um, and I also think that's why we haven't seen a Big Ten team other than Ohio State compete for a national championship since Tom Brady was at Michigan. You know, we're going back like 25 years at this point. Not a single Big Ten team has been good enough to compete for a national championship. And, you know, the Big Ten has, over the years, has had a ton of good rosters, a ton of good coaches, a lot of great defenses, a lot of great offensive lines, but virtually no elite quarterbacks. And this goes even beyond that 2012 draft. I mean, we're going back a while. It's been, the Big Ten has just been starved of elite quarterbacks. Um, and I think if you go look at every national championship winner we've had since the BCS era, almost every single one of those um national championship winners have had elite play at the quarterback position a handful haven't like you know some of those early Nick Saban teams uh, didn't have you know an NFL quarterback but they had a loaded roster and they had an elite defense um, and I think the fact of the matter is that you know, schools like Iowa Wisconsin Minnesota Illinois they're just not capable of getting those type of athletes to fill out a roster um like that. And, you know, the Big Ten doesn't need to have five national title contenders every season in order to be a good conference. But in modern college football, it's becoming more and more imperative to have great quarterback play just to be relevant, you know, just to be a top 25 caliber team. But like I said before, this really falls more so on the coaches than it does any individual school's ability to draw a big time quarterback. Um, you know, with the Playoff expanding to 12 teams next year, I think if any Big Ten team other than Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State, and then USC and Oregon coming over from the Big 12, uh, I mean Pac-12, if any other Big Ten schools other than those I just listed, um, you know, want to be in contention for the college football playoff, want to make an appearance in any time in the next decade plus, I think these Big Ten schools are going to have to take a hard look in the mirror about how they're constructing their teams um, and really their coaching staffs, because I think they're going to need to make a bigger investment on the offensive side of the ball. Um, whether that be hiring an offensive-oriented head coach, um, whether that be going after guys who have a proven track record of developing quarterbacks and you know developing NFL-caliber quarterbacks, or just getting some assistance that has experience coaching in the NFL and coaching NFL quarterbacks, I think schools like Iowa and Illinois, just to name a few, are going to have to make major changes to how they construct their rosters and how they construct their coaching staff because you know the way the Big Ten has. Um, the way the Big Ten has handled the quarterback position over the past decade plus is not good enough uh, to compete for national championships, and that's really what this game is all about. Um, you know, that being said, I could be talking about nothing because I think the Big Ten does have some you know talented young quarterbacks. There's a world where J.J. McCarthy, Drew Aller, and Kyle McCord all return to the Big Ten next year. I think Hudson Card and Luke Altmeyer have a ton of potential as young quarterbacks. They could take another big big step forward. You know, even Gavin, Gavin Wimsatt could end up being a savvy veteran for a, an underrated Rutgers team next year. So who knows? You know, uh, we could be talking about the Big Ten next year in the same vein that we're talking about the Pac-12 this year. But given how quarterbacks in the Big Ten have generally been developed uh, over the past 20 years, really, um, I would say the chances are slim that guys like Hudson Card and Luke Altmeyer and Gavin Wimsatt develop into all Big Ten caliber players. Um, so no matter how you chop it, the reality is the Big Ten has had very disappointing quarterback play for quite some time. And if the Big Ten ever wants to be taken seriously as the best conference in the country, it falls on the shoulders of each individual school to build a team that has a better offense and that is capable of developing an elite quarterback. So now that I finally got that off my chest, it's time to look back at the week three of action across the Big Ten. I have a handful of teams I want to talk about, the first of which is Michigan, who I really haven't 
um, talked about very much so far this season because they've handled business against East Carolina and UNLV, both very overmatched opponents. Uh, but they played Bowling Green Saturday night and they won 31 to 6, which at face level, you know, seems like they took care of business, but they were only up 14 to 6 at halftime. They mustered only 312 yards of offense, outgaining Bowling Green um, by 100 yards. And it was really their defense that finally got them to pull away. JJ McCarthy looked very vulnerable, very average, had three interceptions, forced the ball a lot. His one long touchdown easily could have been his fourth interception as well. Um, and so as I'm watching this Michigan team through three games, you know, part of this might be because they don't have Jim Harbaugh. He, uh, he's finally returning to the team this week. But as I'm looking at Michigan, I'm starting to realize that this offensive line might just be average. And that's really the pinnacle of this whole um, offense is their offensive line. You know, obviously they've been the best offensive line in college football over the past two seasons. And this was the second straight off season that they really repaired that offensive line through the transfer portal. It worked out great for them this year. And, you know, maybe reality setting in that they just kind of whiffed this season because through three games, they're 43rd nationally in yards per carry and 71st in rushing. And that's Michigan's MO. And on top of that, I don't think JJ McCarthy is quite the generational quarterback that Jim Harbaugh and Michigan fans have been hyping up to be. He's a great quarterback. The best quarterback Michigan has had probably since Chad Henney. Um, might even be better than him. Might have to go back to Tom Brady since the last time Michigan's had a quarterback like JJ McCarthy. He's great. Don't get me wrong. But talking about a generational quarterback, like he's a guy that can turn this Michigan offense into a 45 point per game scoring machine. I just don't think that's him. Um, but you know, that being said on the flip side, Blake Corum still has almost identical numbers, um, as he did through three games last year. Um, so he, you know, looks hundred percent healthy. He looks good to go. I think he can still carry this run game. The defense looks good as ever. Um, so I think Michigan can still win games with the same formula as they've had the past two seasons. What my problem is, and I'm starting to doubt that this team, this Michigan team, is capable of winning a national championship. Because as I've talked about before in the offseason, the early part of this season, you know, the college football era, college football playoff era has made it apparent that what you need in order to win a national championship is an elite offense. Um, you need to be able to score points. And I think if Michigan wants to win a national championship, J.J. McCarthy has to prove he's capable of throwing the ball 30, 40 times, completing 75% of those passes and pushing the ball downfield and consistently delivering accurate deep balls. And that's something he still hasn't done now in his third season. But, you know, that being said, everyone really has looked flawed so far this season, and really no one is sticking out as the best team in the country. And I think we're kind of have started to get used to seeing generational teams in the college football playoff era, you know, like 2019 LSU and 2020 Alabama, both, you know, outstanding teams in Georgia the past two seasons, the NFL talent they've had on the defensive side of the ball is just mind boggling. So I think we've kind of gotten used to seeing these all-time great teams and so you know as I've been saying I said earlier in this episode I've said it the past three weeks I said it in the preseason this is the most wide open season of college football we've had in a really long time so you know maybe this is the season that a flawed team can run the table um, so maybe Michigan doesn't have to elevate their offense into, you know, this elite passing offense in order to win a national championship. Maybe that's just not required in 2023. So I could be wrong. But nonetheless, I think the biggest question mark about this um, Michigan team heading into the season is how does that downfield passing attack develop? And that's still a major question. And now we're starting to have question marks around this offensive line. Um, you know, Michigan, they host Rutgers this weekend. That could be pretty tricky. 
you know, Rutgers can really make could make life hard on this Michigan offense. And, you know, if they get into a scrappy, low-scoring game, who's to say that Rutgers can't pull off that upset? I certainly won't pick them, but, you know, Michigan's 24-point favorites heading into this weekend. I'll touch on this game later, but that's pretty scary. And I think if I'm a Michigan fan through three games, I'm not nearly as confident as I am as if I were maybe an Ohio State team, uh, Ohio State fan whose team has improved considerably week over week. Um, so this is my first time talking about Michigan. Well, plenty more time to evaluate them, but through three weeks, I definitely have my reservations about Michigan's ability to knock off Ohio state for a third straight year, return to the college football playoff and win a national championship. There's still a lot we got to learn about this team. Now I'll move on to the Penn State Illinois game, our lone conference matchup of week three. Penn State traveled into Champaign, won 30 to 13. Um, so first real quick about Penn State. Um, got I mean, kind of continuing along the same track as I talked about Michigan, that offensive line really struggled against Illinois. And granted, coming into the season, I thought Illinois had one of the best defensive fronts in the entire country, led by Johnny Newton and Keith Randolph. And Johnny Newton came to play on Saturday. So, um, but that being said, you know, this is an Illinois defensive front who's been shredded through two games against Toledo and Kansas. You would like to hold Penn State to a higher standard than those two teams. Um, so, you know, maybe part of that was, you know, Big Ten familiarity. Brett Bielema is familiar as anyone with Penn State. So, you know, that could have been a part that could have been partly to do with it. But nonetheless, this is a Penn State team that a lot of people um, are saying can win a national championship this year. And their offensive line did did not really play the part on Saturday. And with their offensive line struggling, really their whole offense looked average. Their run game was slow. Drew Aller was uncomfortable. So again, I mean, another you know great Big Ten team that we're thinking has college football playoff and national title contenders, I mean, aspirations, all of a sudden I'm starting to have a little bit of reservations with uh, or, or about. Um, but that being said, Penn State's defense was fantastic, as always. I think they're reaffirming that this is one of the best defenses in the Big Ten. They had they forced five turnovers, harassed Luke Altmaier all day long. Um, but at the same time, I don't think Penn State can count on having that many careless plays that um, like they did against Illinois. You know, when they go and play Michigan and Ohio State, I think they're going to be playing against much better quarterbacks who will take care of the ball a little bit better than Luke Altmaier did. Um, but, you know, really, Illinois' defense has been porous through the first two games, so I'm definitely a little concerned about how that Penn State offense fared against them. But it was uh, Drew Aller's first road game in his career, so you got to figure he'll only improve from here. Now, flipping to the Illinois side of things, honestly, one of my biggest takeaways from the game is that Illinois needs to stop asking so much out of Luke Altmaier. He was 15 to 28 for 163 yards. That's about five and a half yards per attempt. Uh, four interceptions, another fumble. So we had five turners over on the day and a 35 QBR. Um, and so, honestly, I liked what I saw out of Luke Altmaier for the first couple games. I think he's a promising young quarterback. He's got a very some very underrated athleticism. He's got some good ball placement. Um, and I think he's a good leader for this team. But I think Illinois needs to dial it back a little bit. I think they need to utilize his legs a little bit more, get him into some bootlegs, get him some easier throws, and maybe use him in more option plays, some RPOs. Um, but really, Illinois needs to get back to controlling the ball, get back to the, the run game, try to grind out some tough yards on the ground, and stop trying to have Luke Altmaier go win the game for you. Because, you know, maybe next year he'll be in a position to do that, but he is not that quarterback right now. He has made that evident through three games. Um, you know, maybe that has to do, maybe they've been doing that because of the offenses they've played. You know, Toledo is a really good offense. Kansas is. Penn State, um, you know how much talent they have there. So maybe it was Illinois thinking that they 
you know, first of all, their defense hasn't been as good as Brett Bielema probably thought they would be. So I think the offense has kind of been feeling that heat, needing to do a little bit more than they expected. Um, but we're in Big Ten season now. I think playing in the Big Ten West, they're not going to face an offense as good as Toledo or Kansas, as sad as that is to say. Um, so I think Illinois needs to get back to kind of three yards in a cloud of dust. Typical old Brett Bielema football, possess the ball, try to limit possessions, um, and just kind of don't rely on Luke Altmaier to go win you the game. Um but on the positive side, their Illinois defense did play a lot better. And, you know, maybe it is that Big Ten familiarity. Um, like I said before, that will kind of propel Illinois into having turning this season around, um, you know, getting away from this one and two start. Illinois can, you know, I think their whole season is is still ahead of them. You know, their defense has improved throughout the season in each of the past two years. So no reason to think they won't do that again this year. If their defense continues to play like they did on Saturday, and I think they dial back that offense a little bit, try to get it out of Luke Altmaier's hands and utilize his legs a little bit more, you know, Illinois will probably find themselves in the thick of the Big Ten West race once again. Um, so those were my biggest takeaways from that Penn State-Illinois game. Next, I'd like to touch on that Minnesota-North Carolina game. Uh, the Gophers traveled to Chapel Hill to take on Drake May, ended up losing 31-13, to um, which honestly sound makes the game sound a lot worse than it actually was. Um, to be honest, I really liked the Gophers' you know, fight and the resolve they showed throughout the game. Um, the defense continued to make plays. They kept a minute. I know they gave up a lot of yards to Drake May, but he's undoubtedly one of the best quarterbacks in the entire country. Um, you know, I liked, they d definitely didn't give up. That's for sure. And I think the offensive line was was much better. Darius Taylor, um, you know, their freshman running back seems to have definitely overtaken Sean Tyler as their RB one. And he looks like Darius Taylor looks like he's following in the footsteps of guys like Donovan Edwards, Nick Singleton, Katron Allen, Travion Henderson, just in terms of being an elite true freshman running back in the big 10, he's got a really exciting career ahead of him. Um, so, you know, I liked a lot of what I saw out of Minnesota, but at the end of the day, Ethan Kalik Manis just needed to make some plays with his arm in order to, you know, stay with Drake May and keep him in it, and he just couldn't. I'm still impressed with his arm strength. You know, it still seems like he can just flick his wrist and the ball will launch out of the stadium. Um, and I think he still can develop into a good quarterback. But the fact of the matter is right now, he's just not an accurate quarterback. He doesn't have seem to have great chemistry with his receivers. He's got a lot of weapons around him. I know that for a fact. Um, and it just doesn't seem like he can really push that ball downfield for them and, you know, connect on anything more than a couple yards away from the line of scrimmage. Um, so... You know, I just don't don't think Minnesota is able to score much with him at quarterback this season. Like I said, I think he's got some great tools. Um, and if you know the Minnesota wants to do something that no Big Ten team other than Ohio State has done in a long time, and you know, develop Ethan Kalik Manis, you know, they could be scary good next season. But um, you know, it was it was. I knew going into this game that Kalik Manis would have to make some plays with his arm in order for Minnesota to hang with them. For some reason, I thought he'd be able to do that, and he just wasn't. Um, but luckily for Minnesota, this is easily the best offense they'll play until November. Um, like I said before, the Big Ten West is full of struggling offenses, so I think this Minnesota team is capable they're built to win some ugly games um you know they've got a really strong uh, an improving offensive line a strong run game a great defense 
Um, so, you know, I said at the beginning of the season, I didn't think that Nebraska-Minnesota game looked like a matchup of teams that would be competing for the Big Ten West crown, but, you know, virtually every team in that division has continued to struggle. And I think Minnesota, um, you know, just like Iowa, they're built to to, w- to win in November. And I think, you know, they'll be in the thick of that Big Ten West race, despite how disappointing of a, a game that ended up being in Chapel Hill on Saturday. So I just have a few more teams I want to touch on uh, before I get into game of the week, team of the week, and the helmet stickers for week three. I'm going to try to do this in quick hitting fashion. So the first team I want to talk about is Nebraska, who hosted Northern Illinois Saturday night. They won 35 to 11. Looks like a completely different team, a completely rejuvenated offense uh, with Heinrich Harburg at quarterback, who uh, stepped up with Jeff Sims now relegated to the bench. Um, you know, he didn't have a wildly impressive day, but he was efficient and he took care of the ball he was 14 to 24 for 158 yards and two touchdowns he was also nebraska's leading rusher with 98 rush yards and a rush touchdown um he didn't have any turnovers which was probably his biggest statistic of the day um and like i said i mean i'm kind of evaluating nebraska under a new light with this new quarterback um it was nice to see someone that you know isn't just handing the ball to the opposing defense um and they seem to have someone that can you know actually lead them up and down the field um, bad news for Nebraska. They lost their t- their top two running backs, headlined by Gabe Irvin, who had a tremendous spring and fall camp, really impressed his coaching staff, got off to a pretty good start, but he's gone for the year. So um, it looks like really the, the load of that run game is going to fall on Anthony Grant's shoulders again. He was the starter last year, really hasn't touched the ball very much this year. Um, but I think he is a very capable back. And I think with this, how this defense is playing, um, how they played really all year, and how bad the Big Ten West offenses have looked. I think all Harburg really needs to do is manage the game um, in order for Nebraska to hang around in a, really any Big Ten West game. So they're certainly not dead in that division uh, thanks to that quarterback change. Uh, Rutgers, who I mentioned before, beat um, Virginia Tech, one of the only marquee wins that the Big Ten had in Week 3. Um, what I love about the Scarlet Knights this season is that they're finally playing with an identity. Um, you know, their defense looks as strong as I knew it would be, but Kyle Manungai is probably the best running back in the entire country that no one is talking about. He's combined for over 300 rushing yards over the past two, um, over the past two games. Um, but honestly, a lot of the credit I think goes to Gavin Wimsat. He hasn't been spectacular by any means. Um, but he, the quarterback position for Rutgers was the biggest question mark heading into the season. And I think, you know, they were easily my, you know, number 14 ranked quarterback unit coming into this season, uh, for the Big Ten. Um, but you know, he's, he hasn't turned the ball over yet, which is again, like I said, with Harburg, his greatest statistic, um, you know, he's seems to be good for, you know, one, two, maybe three big explosive plays. He, you know, he's got great getaway speed. He's a great dual threat. He can extend plays and he's been taking care of the ball. Like I said before, most important of all for Rutgers. So, um, you know, they know who they are. They're a gritty team. They're going to bring maximum effort every single play. They're going to swarm you on defense. They won't overwhelm you with the line of scrimmage, but they swarm. And they, I mean, they're, they're great open field tacklers um and they're you know ground and pound team on offense so it's great to see Rutgers finally having an identity and really embracing it um so I think Rutgers is playing like they believe they can win every game um they're walking into Michigan as 24 and a half point underdogs and I think that I'll touch on it later but I think that game is going to be a lot closer than that and then finally um Purdue 
who probably had the most disappointing loss uh, out of any Big Ten team. Um, they were just two and a half point under home underdogs against Syracuse. That line actually closer to kickoff ended up becoming a pick 'em, um, but they fell behind early and kept pl- trying to play catch up, and they really just never could. Every time their defense had an opportunity to get off the ball, it seemed like they gave up a big third down completion, or it seemed like Garrett Schrader. Um, Syracuse's quarterback just ripped off another long run. He had 195 yards rushing and four touchdowns. And this isn't some crazy, crazy athlete. Um, you know, a lot of it was just him finding open space and attacking it. Um, and really, Purdue has looked like a different team since returning from that rain delay against Virginia Tech last weekend. You know, the offense has been disjointed. Run game is still inconsistent. Um, you know, Deion Burks at wide receiver is explosive, but I don't really see anyone in that receiving core that they can rely on to just go up and make a tough grab when it counts. You know, on third down there, I don't think Hudson Card has anyone that he's really confident in that he can find one-on-one coverage and just get the ball to them and he'll come down with the ball. Purdue just doesn't have a guy like that, um, like Charlie Jones was for them last year. Um, defense looks like it's wearing out already. Um, you know, you know, I don't know if this is something that'll get better as the season goes on. Um, but they just, I think their open field tackling has been getting worse and worse. So it really seems like Purdue is trending in the wrong direction. I loved the first couple games out of them from Ryan Walters. I love the energy he's bringing, but all of a sudden with that disappointing 35 to 20 home loss against Syracuse, it kind of feels like Purdue desperately needs a win in the worst way. And now they're hosting Wisconsin. Um, I think both of those teams are are looking for a a key conference win to kick off the conference season. Um, And it's just, you know, you don't like to, for a team going through a new regime change, you don't like to, it does, it's not great to have so much stress on one game so early, um, you know, under a new coaching staff. So I know I like Ryan Walters. I like what he's been doing. I think he'll get this program on the right track in some time. But as far as Purdue being a Big Ten West contender, I, I'm, I'm not really buying that right now. I think they, they have a lot of things to shore up on both sides of the ball. You know, Hudson Court, card has been promising but you know he's also been inconsistent with his accuracy and you know for the first time this season he was really really sloppy against Syracuse so Purdue has a lot of things to fix and um you know I'm talking about pretty much every team um even Nebraska in this division as potential um Big Ten West champions and I just don't see Purdue being in that same bucket uh, based off what I've seen through three games all right, now we can finally get into uh, game of the week for week three. I'm going to go with uh, Louisville versus Indiana. Louisville jumped out to a 21-0 lead at halftime, but Indiana was the better team in the second half. They were about, you know, an inch away from tying that game up when Taven Jackson uh, dove on third and goal for the pylon. They called them short. They couldn't convert on the ensuing play, and then they just couldn't get that final defensive stop in order to get the offense the ball back. Um my biggest takeaways from this for on Indiana side is that they need more playmakers to emerge on offense other than Jalen Lucas. Um, you know, there were a few drops that the receivers had. Uh, Dacuse Carter had one that led to an interception. Donovan McCulley had one on a crucial third down. Um, and it just, you know, I, I thought that Indiana had a really underrated receiving core with, you know, Cam Camper and EJ Williams and Dacuse Carter. Um, you know, transferring into the program, and they just haven't been making plays so far in three games. Um, that being said, I am really impressed with Taven Jackson, who's definitely had a, taken a stranglehold on this starting quarterback job after, um, you know, splitting it with Brendan Soresby week one. He looks a lot more comfortable. He looks night and day compared to that opener against Ohio State. Um, you know, he's comfortable in the pocket. He has good accuracy. Um, 
And, you know, he has pretty good mobility. I would like to see his legs used a little bit more, kind of like what I mentioned with Luke Altmaier. I'd like to see Taven Jackson used more in bootlegs and RPOs um, and just, you know, have just Indiana not forcing him to pick apart defenses with his arm so much. Um, and that's not because I don't like what I've seen out of him as a thrower. It's mainly because I don't have a lot of faith in these receivers. They aren't making plays like I thought they would this season. The offense has really become entirely Jalen Lucas on the ground and through the air. He was their leading receiver, um, which I don't think is something you should see out of a running back with a team that has this talent at receiver, at least that I thought they had. Um, I would like to see out of Indiana use Josh Henderson and Jalen Lucas a little bit more in the backfield together because, um, you know, I think Josh Henderson has been a capable running back for them. He's a, he's a great contrast to Jalen Lucas who, you know, will burn you with his, his moves and his speed. Josh Henderson is a much more of a downhill running back. So I think utilizing, um, both of them in the backfield, um, and you know, maybe being able to split Jalen Lucas out as a wide receiver, um, as well. I think that could, you know, make life a little bit more challenging for the defense. Um, you know, speaking of defense, Indiana's, uh, defensive, um, defensive front really seemed to kind of get worn down towards the end of that first half. Um, they had a handful of busted coverages in the first half that led to some points. Um, and some of them Louisville wasn't able to capitalize on. Um, but like I said before, Indiana was definitively the better, better team in the second half. It's just, it's a shame. They just couldn't kind of get that going a little bit earlier. Um, the defense did its job, just couldn't get that final stop to give the offense another chance. Um, and I think this def- this team will continue to get better as the season goes on. I've loved the see, I loved the improvement I've seen out of this team over the past two weeks since that rough opener against Ohio State. The unfortunate part for Indiana and, and Hoosier fans is that they play in the Big Ten East, um, which you know, like I said, is you know filled with with great teams this season. Um, and so I'm really, I'm highly doubtful that this Indiana team can make a bowl game, especially with that loss to Louisville. Um, and like I said before, if Indiana was in the West, I firmly believe this team is capable of being in that big 10, big 10 race. Um, just from what I've seen about from guys like Aaron Casey on the defensive side of the ball and the development I've seen from Taven Jackson, but I just don't think that Indiana will have an opportunity to get five more wins on their schedule with the uh with conference games coming up so i liked what i saw from indiana definitely a tough loss they definitely needed that game if they wanted to get to a bowl game this season but um you know assuming tom allen and this staff sticks around for another season which you know if indiana ends up with you know three wins again um i think that might be unlikely but i think they got some pieces to to put together a pretty nice team next season So my team of the week for week three is actually going to be my transition into previewing the week four slate of games. So before I get into that, I'm just going to give out my helmet stickers for great individual performances uh, from week three around the Big Ten. The first helmet sticker is going to go to Illinois defensive lineman Johnny Newton, who I mentioned before, finally had his big arrival uh, for Illinois in 2023. He was very disruptive for that Penn State offensive line. He was really everywhere, had six tackles, a tackle for loss, a few quarterback hurries, two pass breakups, and a blocked kick. So really everywhere on Saturday and was a big reason why that Penn State-Illinois game uh, stayed relatively close into the second half. Um, now I got three running backs for the second straight week that I'm going to give helmet stickers to. Uh, the first one, freshman running back Darius Taylor out of Minnesota, who I mentioned before, was really Minnesota's entire offense on Saturday against North Carolina. He had 163 total yards and a touchdown on over six yards per carry. Um, and really without him, Minnesota probably gets beat more like 31 to three, um, in Chapel Hill. 
I'm also going to give a helmet sticker to Iowa running back LaShawn Williams. He's actually now the third different Iowa running back to get a helmet sticker um, and really kind of completed has completed what looks like a three-headed dog um, in that Hawkeye backfield. Um, on Saturday, it was his turn for that big game. Like I said, he had 172 total yards and a touchdown. Um, and then the final running back I'm going to give a helmet sticker to is Rutgers running back Kyle Manongai. I mentioned him before, best running back in the country that no one is talking about. He had 143 rush yards and three touchdowns against Virginia Tech. Um, and really that whole Scarlet Knight offense is running through Kyle Manongai. As long as he stays healthy, I think Rutgers has a chance to um, win a lot of games this season. Um, now switching to back to the defensive side of the ball, going to give a helmet sticker to Indiana linebacker Aaron Casey. You know, he's continuing what might be an all-American season for him. He, um, on Saturday against Louisville, he had 10 tackles and two sacks and three tackles for losses. And I'm also going to give one to Wisconsin safety Hunter Wohler. Um, he's kind of emerged as the best defender on Wisconsin side of the ball. His play recognition is unbelievable. It really seemed like he was everywhere. He only had, he had, I'd say he only had 10 tackles because it feels like he had a lot more. Um, but he also had a sack and a tackle for loss and two interceptions. So it was all over the field for that Badger defense. And the final helmet sticker I'm going to give out is to Nebraska quarterback Heinrich Harburg. I went through his stats earlier, 14 to 24, 158 yards, two touchdowns, 98 rushdowns, rush yards, a rush touchdown, and most importantly, no turnovers. He brought a whole new dynamic to this Nebraska team, and I'm evaluating them in a whole new light moving forward this season. My week three team of the week is is the Ohio State Buckeyes who absolutely throttled Western Kentucky 63 to 10 on Saturday afternoon and you know mind you this isn't a slouch of a team that Ohio State played definitely the best team they've played to date this season um and it's a Western Kentucky team with a veteran quarterback um an experienced coaching staff that won 9 games each of the past two seasons um this is also a very pass happy um offense you know you remember ba- um, Bailey Zappi uh, a few years ago set the NCAA record uh, for pass yards in the season in this very offense. So um, this was a tremendous test for that Ohio State defense, which looked really great through the first two games, but hard to gauge exactly how good. Um, but now that we've seen them for three weeks, I'm ready to say Ohio State has the best defense in the entire country. You know, through three games, they're giving up less than seven points a game. They're holding opponents to 55% completion percentage. Um, they've been averaging 223 total yards per game, and they finally started forcing some turnovers on Saturday. They now have five on the season. So, um, and it's all three levels of this defense. You know, the interior defensive line is as strong as any in the country. They are big and they are deep. It is just impossible for um, opposing teams to run the ball on them. They are giving up just two and a half yards per carry. And the secondary just looks nice day from yesterday it's clear that um, everyone is just so much more comfortable with their assignments players are no longer thinking about where they need to be um, and they're just swarming the ball and attacking Uh, Denzel Burke looks like a potential first round pick now after a really bust of a season last year Um, and Ole Miss transfer Davison Igbenosum looks like another great cornerback opposite him and Jordan Hancock, you know, a young player who struggled it so far in his Ohio State career, is settling into that nickelback uh, or that nickel corner um, position. So um, it's really, I mean, every level of this Ohio State defense looks elite. And offensively, you know, the offensive line is starting to get it get its ground. You know, the first couple weeks, I was talking about how it's a concern of mine. And really what's been wrong with the Ohio State offensive line is miscommunications and missed assignments. They haven't necessarily been getting beat off the ball. Um, and they finally seem to fix everything week three. They 
there weren't really any missed assignments or miscommunications. They manhandled um, that Western Kentucky defensive front. Travion Henderson looks 100% healthy. He looks um, as good as he has since 2021, making guys miss. And they really have do have a three-headed backfield with him, Chip Trainum, and Mayan Williams. They can give either of those guys 20 touches if they really need it. And... Um, Ryan Day finally kind of opened up the offense too. Um, finally let Kyle McCord really throw the ball around and he looked great. He looked really comfortable, threw the ball for over 300 yards and three touchdowns, no turnovers. So um, honestly, it was a nearly flawless game for Ohio State. They finally played like the best team in the country, which they are fully capable of doing. I know, I mean, I was hyping up Western Kentucky, but they're not Notre Dame. And that's who Ohio State has coming up this weekend. Notre Dame looks like a really complete team. I mean, they have been utterly dominant on both sides of the ball. Sam Hartman has transformed this offense and turned it into an absolute unit. Um, defensively, they look even better than they did last year, but there are definitely um, some keys to victory for Ohio State this weekend. Um, defensively, I think it's going to come down to those edge rushers, JT Tui Molowau and Jack Sawyer. Because um, first of all, I don't think Notre Dame is going to be able to run the ball very effectively, if at all, against the Buckeyes. I mean, Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers are as good as anyone um, in the country against the run. And like I said before, that interior defensive line for Ohio State is just so good. They're so big and so athletic and so deep. Um, I think it's going to be hard for anyone this season to run the ball against Ohio State. So this game for Notre Dame really is going to fall on the shoulders of Sam Hartman. And so with Ohio State's defense, what they really do is they, I mean, they'll leave some guys open, especially around the line of scrimmage. They play a lot of soft zone and what they really predicate their defense on is swarming the ball. I mean, they have some real great athletes in the secondary um, this season led by, you know, Josh Proctor, Lathan Ransom, Sonny Styles. Um, they have guys that can, you know, go, you know, they can swarm and it's, they're more than happy giving up a five yard completion because they know that isn't going to turn into more than a six yard gain the way guys are swarming. Um, so there will be open receivers for Sam Hartman. The key is how long does he have? Because if JT Tuimolowau and Jack Sawyer don't get home, he's going to be able to push that ball downfield and he's going to find some mismatches because the thing is with Ohio State playing three safe, three safeties all the time, you know, they're great athletes, they're great open field tacklers, they're great in run support, they can blitz, but when they get lined up against the receiver, that's where the mismatch happens. So Sam Hartman is a good enough quarterback to be able to find that mismatch. And so if he has all day to throw back there, he will eventually pick apart this Ohio State secondary. As great as they've looked, Sam Hartman is just one of those dudes who's going to go make plays and he's going to go throw some balls that are just, you can't defend against. Um, so if Ohio State wants to shut down this Notre Dame offense, it's all going to come down to their edge rushers and how quickly can they get after Sam Hartman? How uncomfortable can they make him? Um, cause if Sam Hartman can, can sit back there, um, you know, for three to five seconds and not get hit and deliver the ball, um, freely, you know, there, I don't think there is a defense in the country that he can't ultimately pick apart. Offensively, for Ohio State, I think this is going to fall squarely on the offensive line. Um, surely, Kyle McCord is going to have to make some plays with his arm. He's going to have to extend some plays, maybe make something out of nothing. It really just comes down to how many times is he going to be asked to do that. Um, because if Ohio State can't run the ball, and it falls on Kyle McCord to throw the ball like 40 times for 400 yards to for Ohio State to get a win. I think it's going to be a long night for the Buckeyes in East Lansing. You know, Kyle McCord's a promising young quarterback. He's shown tremendous improvement over the first three weeks, but I just don't think he has that in him just yet. Um, so Ohio State is really going to need to run the ball out of the gate to get the, the crowd out of it and try to get this game off of Kyle McCord's shoulders as much as possible. And obviously they're going to have to pass protect too. 
Um, just make sure he's comfortable because, you know, he isn't the most mobile guy in the world. He's, you know, not Justin Fields back there for Ohio State. He's not going to um, break out of the pocket and, you know, break off a 20-yard run um, at any given time. So I think you can say this about virtually any game at any level of football that it comes down to the offensive line. Um, but yeah, for Ohio State, that's definitely true going up against a, uh, unit of a defense. They've, you know, this offensive line has improved week over week. They were utterly dominant last weekend, but it's going to be a lot tougher to put a hat on a hat and get a consistent push against this uh, Notre Dame front. So I think we'll know pretty early on how this game is going to go. If Ohio State comes out of the gate and they can run the ball with relative ease and they can set up that play action, I think it's going to, Ohio State wins by two or more touchdowns. But if they can't run the ball and they find themselves in a lot of third and longs, if Kyle McCord has like you know, 25 pass attempts at halftime. Um, that's an indication the game's not going Ohio State's way. So I think we'll know out of the gate, um, just really how both lines for Ohio State are playing how this game is going to go. Um, ultimately, I think Ohio State gets the win. I just liked what I saw out of them too much last week. I think Ryan Day, um, you saw he was much more aggressive offensively. He was fired up before that game too. I think he knows exactly how important this game is. Um, and I think he's been saving a lot offensively for it. Um, and I think Ohio State's going to come. I think this offensive line is a lot better than a lot of people think. I think they will be able to run the ball against Notre Dame. And I think, you know, Kyle McCord is only going to be counted on to make, you know, a handful of um, big time throws down the field. And, you know, when you have, if Ohio State's able to run the ball, they'll be able to set up that play action and he will find Marvin Harrison and Emeka Ibuka in one-on-one coverage. And that's um, just a battle that, you know, virtually no secondary can handle in the country. So um, that being said, I think Sam Hartman can make just enough plays uh, to keep Notre Dame in it. But ultimately, I'm going to go with the, the Buckeyes by six, 27-21. And with that, we can jump right into my five Big Ten betting locks for week four of the season. Uh, pretty much every Big Ten game that I want to talk about is included in these uh, five locks. So to kick things off, I'm going to start off with the second biggest matchup in the Big Ten this weekend, Iowa at Penn State in the whiteout Saturday night. So Iowa-Penn State is traditionally a really close game, or at least in recent history. Uh, Iowa has actually won the last two matchups against Penn State. They didn't play last year, but they won in 2020 and 2021. And also, each of the past five matchups between these teams have been within six points. So this is, I mean, traditionally a really tight, low-scoring battle. I know this is the whiteout, but I don't think the, um, you know, Penn State whiteout isn't something that has always delivered a guaranteed win or a guaranteed blowout for Penn State. Um, in fact, last time Cade McNamara played at Penn State wasn't 2021 for Michigan. Uh, he threw for 217 yards, three touchdowns, no turnovers um, in a 21-17 victory that um, Michigan really had control for the majority of the game until a late Penn State rally. Um, so I expect another tight game. Um, I know this Iowa team hasn't been pretty so far, but we've already seen this offense, Penn State offense look semi-vulnerable against an Illinois defense that I don't think uh, lights a candle to this Iowa defense this year, um, at least at this point in the season. So I don't expect you know, Penn, this Iowa offense to have to score a lot of points in order to keep this game close. Um, I think Iowa really offensively just has to take care of the ball. And as unspectacular as Cade McNamara has been this season, I think that's something he's fully capable of um, and will really prioritize heading into this game um, at Penn State. 
So the line right now is set at 14 and a half in favor of Penn State. I love that and think that's an absolute steal. I mean, this Iowa offensive line has gotten better week by week. I feel like they will be able to churn out some yardage against this really great Penn State defense. Um, and that, the, you know, Nittany Lion offense won't be able to benefit from five turnovers, setting them up in uh, positive territory this weekend. So I think 14 and a half is almost a guarantee. I think, you know, Penn State is the better team. They're the better roster. Um, they should definitely come out with this victory, but I would take this, you know, I'd almost all the way down to 10. I think it's going to be a cl- close to a one possession game, and I think this is going to be decided in the fourth quarter. So um, I love Iowa plus 14 and a half against Penn State. My second lock is one that I mentioned early, earlier in this episode, Rutgers plus 24 and a half on the road against Michigan. Um, listen, Michigan has won their first three games uh, by 27 against East Carolina, 28 against UNLV, and 25 against Bowling Green. Um, and Rutgers is a much better team than any of those um, teams that they played. I feel like this line is kind of inflated because Jim Harbaugh is returning to the sideline for the Wolverines, but I really don't think it's going to make that much of an impact. You know, Jim Harbaugh isn't out on the field playing. And based off of what we see, we saw from Michigan last weekend with their offensive line, um, continued struggles from Donovan Edwards, uh, J.J. McCarthy's decision-making last week and some of his downfield passes um, did not look great. So, I mean, I, I definitely have some question marks about this Michigan offense, and I think um, Greg Schiano is going to have Rutgers coming into this game fully believing they can pull off the upset. Because like I said earlier in the episode, they are playing like they believe they can win every game, and this defense um, surely is one of the five best in the Big Ten. So I think they'll give this Michigan offense some fit. It's going to be low-scoring, close first half until Michigan can ultimately put away. I just don't think Rutgers offense is going to be able to score enough. Um, to actually pull off the upset, but 24 and a half just seems like an awful lot of points um, for really what, what's been one of the hottest teams in the Big Ten in this early part of the season. Um, I love what I've seen out of Rutgers. I knew I loved the direction Greg Schiano was taking them in, um, and this is going to be, be a big statement for them. You know, I don't think they're going to pull off the upset, but if they can walk out of um, the big house, you know, saying they only lost to uh, the number two ranked team in the country by 14, which is something I think is definitely realistic. It's um, really can help propel this Rutgers program. So plus 24 and a half all day for Rutgers. In my third lock, I'm going to continue my trend with uh, road teams covering. I like Minnesota minus 11 and a half at Northwestern. Um, listen, I didn't see anything from Northwestern in their 38 to 14 loss against Duke last weekend. That makes me think they're anything more than what we've really known about them all along. Um, ben Bryant really just hasn't been doing anything for this Northwestern offense. Um, I'm not going to be surprised at all if Minnesota shuts them out. I know they gave up, um, you know, a, a lot of yards. Uh, 31 points to North Carolina last weekend, but that's one of the best offenses of the country, one of the best quarterbacks in the country. Um, I, I still really love what I've seen from this Minnesota defense so far this season. Um, I, I think they're just going to absolutely shut down Northwestern's offense. You know, Minnesota's offense is a whole different story. They definitely have their own problems they have to work through, but um, I just, I, I can't fathom how this line is all the way down at 11 and a half. I think this is definitely a two touchdown win for Minnesota. Um, like I said, I mean they. This is a team that's built for some for some ugly wins, and I think they have no problem just kind of um, controlling the line of scrimmage and you know winning in a kind of not so not so pretty twenty three nothing type game. So um, I definitely this is a get right game for Minnesota after a tough game last week, and um, definitely like them to cruise to a victory against Northwestern. 
For my fourth lock, I'm going to roll with the Hoosiers. They are 16 and a half point home favorites against Akron. Um, first time Indiana's featured in my uh, five Big Ten betting locks. Um, first of all, what I love about this game, it's a blackout for Indiana. They're wearing these black uniforms, I think, for the first time in program history. Um, and I think Tom Allen, his staff, and his coach, uh, his players know exactly how important this game is for them. Um, you know, if Indiana wants any hope of, you know, getting to six wins, getting to a bowl game, this is a must have game. And I think this is a, you know, like I said before, Minnesota, a get right game before they enter, um, the thick of conference play. Um, and I really like what I've seen out of Indiana, honestly, the past couple weeks. I know the first half against, um, Louisville last week was pretty ugly, but, uh, they were the better team in the second half, objectively, and I really like what I've seen out of Taven Jackson so far. He's really comfortable in that pocket the past couple weeks. He's actually, I mean, he's showing why he was a four-star athlete coming out of uh, high school and why Tennessee had some pretty high expectations for him. He's got some good ball placement, and you know, honestly, if he had a time machine and he could go play that Ohio State game over again, I think that game definitely goes a little differently than 23-3, to the way the Indiana defense was playing. Um, and also, this Akron team is just no good. They lost to Temple Week 1, and it's a Temple team that just got throttled by Rutgers a couple weeks ago. So, I mean, you can kind of use the transfer property a little bit, which is always uh, dangerous with sports, but, you know, Temple's probably about 40 points worse than Rutgers. I think this Indiana team won't have a problem um, beating them uh, by at least 17 and you know what's an important game for them and what should be uh, a good environment um, in Indiana as well my fifth and final lock is going to take us out to East Lansing where Maryland is uh, traveling to take on Michigan State and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this game um, because I think it's a massive game for both programs. First of all, starting with Maryland, uh, who got you know, huge news back in the offseason when Talia Tonga-Viola announced he was returning for another season, sparked some you know huge expectations for this program coming into the season. You know, Mike Loxley spoke of Big Ten championships uh, this offseason, the first time he's really brought that up as a coach. You know, he really thinks that this is a team that can go compete for Big Ten championship this season. Um, but they really played around with their food the past couple weeks. Fell into early 14 nothing leads um, at home against Charlotte and Virginia, both teams that they should have taken care of relatively easily. Um, and, you know, as much as I love this Maryland team, I really like them coming into the season, and I still like, um, you know, what they have going and where they can go this year. Um, despite that, they still have massive question marks along both lines of scrimmage. Um, you know, they haven't really been able to win consistently in the trenches in quite some time, really, in their entire time in the Big Ten. Um, that remains to be seen if they can you know, change that around this season. Um, and, you know, say what you want about Michigan State. I'll touch on them in a second. Um, but, you know, for all their flaws and as badly as last week went, uh, they still have a really good defensive front. Um, and, you know, for Maryland, I mean, I do see a world where Michigan State shuts down this Maryland um, this Maryland offense. You know, they haven't been very consistent through three games, and to this point in his career, Talia Tungaviola has not proven that he can go out and win a big game um, and, you know, while avoiding big mistakes. You know, he hasn't had that signature win in his career uh, as a Terp. So this is Maryland's first real test, and I think a win could give them all the confidence in the world um, and propel them to really what would be a magical season uh, for this program, even if they went 9-3. and three. Um, but a loss really could derail everything really early on uh, for, for a team that I think um, you know has aspirations of staying in the top 25 for a good portion of the season. Uh, but flipping to Michigan State, I don't think it can be underestimated the magnitude of what's going on with their program right now. 
So Mel Tucker has officially been fired from the university. Mark D'Antonio is sticking around as associate head coach for the rest of the year, while really the rest of this coaching staff and team tries to pick up the pieces for what was a team that actually had really high hopes in Lee Stanzing. There are a lot of Michigan State fans that thought this team could surprise a lot of people, um, myself included, at the beginning of the year. And I think what's going on with that program is definitely a bigger distraction that maybe I had had thought last week and um, you could tell they just were not ready to play Saturday against Washington. Granted, a really great Washington team that I think even under the best circumstances would have handled Michigan State, but um, you could tell they just were not right for that game. Um, and now, you know, the whole football program is facing a massive question mark. I think these next three months are probably more important than any in the history of Michigan State football. Not only how they finish this season, but then who they hire as their next head coach to lead them into this new era of college football because, you know, they're one bad hire away from becoming Vanderbilt um, and really never sniffing uh, really even a bowl game, um, you know, for the foreseeable future. So they have to get this right, and I think it all starts with finishing this season on a positive note and showing... Um, you know, not only prospective coaches and recruits, but their fan base, that this is a solid program that can still hang with Michigan and, you know, Penn State and even maybe Ohio State um, in the new Big Ten, just like they have for so many years under um, Mark D'Antonio. So it all, I mean, you can kind of scratch Mark last week as a, a scratch. You know, they never probably really even stood a chance against such a, a lethal aerial, aerial attack with Michael Penix. Also a quarterback that has a lot of familiarity with that team, with that roster. Um, so I think this is where it all kind of resets for Michigan State. And I think everyone, you know, there is, is dying to get a win and try to start to put this te- thing behind them, um, this whole situation behind them. But um, I think a loss could really just start to derail the season. Um, like I said with Maryland, I think this... What was once a hopeful season with Michigan State could turn sour really quickly um, if they don't pick up a win soon. And, you know, what I mean by sour is they could be looking at a four and eight season this year, making trying to attract a, a decent head coach an even bigger challenge. This game will end up being determined by two things. When Maryland has the ball, it's going to end up being how much time does Talia Tungabayola have uh, against this Michigan State front? Because I don't think Maryland is going to be able to run the ball super consistently against them, but they can definitely take the top off this defense. I think that Talia Tungabayola could be in for a really big day um, on Saturday, but only if he's held upright. So it's really going to come down to how much uh, pressure can Michigan State get, and can they consistently make him uncomfortable with only four guys rushing. Um, and then on the flip side, when Michigan State has the ball, I think it's all going to come down to their run game and Nathan Carter. You know, now all of a sudden there's maybe a quarterback controversy brewing in East Lansing. Some people clamoring for um, Noah Kim to hit the bench. I definitely think that's, um, you know, a, a little bit too soon to start bringing that up, especially with everything Michigan State has has going on. They definitely don't need a quarterback controversy controversy on top of all of that. So um, I think as best of, as best they can. They're trying to. They're going to try to uh, keep the game out of his hands and just make sure that they don't give any easy opportunities for this Maryland offense. So, um, you know, I'm going to be you know watching again along the line of scrimmage. Can Michigan State get a push and allow Nathan Carter to eat up yards and have Michigan State control the clock? Um, ultimately, I do think this is going to be an uglier game than may p- some people may think. Um, I see this over under sitting at 53 and a half, and I think that's a lot. You know, like I said before, this Maryland offense has not been terribly balanced and consistent so far this season. This is definitely their biggest challenge, despite the distraction that's going on with Michigan State. This is easily the most talented team Maryland is facing. Um, and I just, 
I'm definitely concerned about this this Michigan State offense as well. I just kind of be, see this being more of a slugfest than than a shootout. Um, I think Maryland wins uh, in a tight one, and I think um, the under hits comfortably. 53.5, I would take that down probably all the way to 50. And that is going to be it for the week four edition of the Floor Slaps College Football Podcast. I've been your host, Sean. Um, listen, really appreciate uh, anyone and everyone that's out there listening right now. I may have touched on this last week. Jordan and I, who run the Floor Slap, we both work full-time jobs. Uh, we both do this in our spare time because we love Big Ten sports and we love talking and writing about it. Um, and I hope you guys have enjoyed listening along as well. If you don't already, please follow us on Twitter at The Floor Slap. We also have a website, thefloorslap.com. You know, college basketball season right around the corner. I know Jordan is going to have a lot of great content leading up to that season. Um, and keep an eye out for our Big Ten betting guide. We've been uh, um, positive so far this season, so hope to continue that. And just can't wait for another spectacular week of college football. Um, and I will meet you guys back here next Wednesday for another edition of the Floor Slaps College Football Podcast. Have a great weekend. Everybody.